This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. Because he has, he has so much to gain and has such a material did get one more book from Gustavus Myers that checks back in on some of these plutocrats about, well, yeah, about 30 years later down the road mm-hmm. in 1939. Yeah. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, yeah, like a kind of a reboot, soft reboot, but also a sequel in some ways. Definitely. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's and kind of, you know, it, it, it brings together a lot of threads and also, mm-hmm kind of a recapitulates a lot of things from history of the great American fortunes, but with a slightly different kind of a more direct focus, I guess on the role that like the hereditary transmission of wealth plays. Yeah. Um, yeah there's some great, which is why it is called, which is why it's kind of interestingly called the ending of hereditary American fortunes. Yes. An optimistic title. Uh, but one that makes sense in context, because, yeah, this was the, you know, era of FDR, who he, you know, is kind of sanguine about or at least hopeful about, you know, that he'll finish the job and and yes, the, exactly. the legacy well, yeah, of primogeniture in America. Well, it does it does jump out at you. The fact that he says, yeah, the end for somebody who has been so kind of ruthlessly uh, not optimistic throughout so much of his writing career it, it almost jumps out like oh as, as gustavus meyer's gone soft you know in his old age and now he's he just believes that like you know if we we vote for bernie or something <laughs> that like you know we could have a real democracy for everyone you know yeah uh but i, I mean i, I do say, think that nah. there's like i mean there's definitely a distinction to be made between fdr and bernie i mean that is oh, a for huge sure change like in the political system i mean it is like a monumental shift on a scale that like uh you know a presidential turnover in the modern day doesn't really compare to but at the same time yeah i mean he was also like dying so maybe he just wanted to have a little bit of hope for the future but also like (laughs) true i mean also the uh, the curious timing of like like deep into the new deal but like right on the precipice of world war ii yeah, you know, so he it doesn't really address anything of you know which which ended up being such a reshuffling of like the the whole game basically, mm-hmm. and it is fast. Like I'm actually kind of yeah, I'm kind I'm kind of sympathetic to like his somewhat optimistic thing because I think it can be almost like too easy sometimes to kind of uh, just flatten this whole historical period and mm-hmm. act like like we mentioned in the first part 
of this like the idea that oh just like the the rich always win everything and like they've always been in control and like we've never had a democracy and blah 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 and like that's incredibly true <laughs> in, in many, <laughs> yeah. many degrees but at the same time uh this period that he kind of gets to talk about in ending of hereditary american fortunes like he is kind of he's charting like throughout american history there have been pushbacks and from yeah. time to time there have been kind of they've uh, suffered losses and they've been on the back foot before like even in hot gaff three at times they were like scared yeah a little bit well, you know well, they usually did win out <laughs> uh you're yeah. always scuttled away but no for sure i think that uh, the thing that comes through, especially near the end of this volume, is that the change across American society, I mean, it was like bubbling up to the surface. It was very repressed, but this like, populist rage towards the plutocrats, it really did reach a kind of different point in the 1930s because, you know, everybody knows the Great Depression was awful. But to see, like, there's a point later in this book where he's talking about the U.S. Senate like in the mid 1930s in the new new deal era and i think he mentions one senator i forget who who says that he was like the sole millionaire in the u.s senate mm -hmm. which is like wait what like <laughs> one are you kidding me you know and well of, yeah I mean. of course you could make the argument that probably a lot of these guys that were elected to the senate were still ended up like serving the interests of like powerful forces but compared and they probably to what, were rich like it's different to be a millionaire now no, it's true. I mean, I guess he, he meant like, yeah, like a, a maybe he said multimillionaire, but like a, a, a legit, like wealthy kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of them did have like money uh, for sure. But but compared to when he's talking about like before the popular election of senators, how it was just like people like Stephen Elkins were just like these lords that were just it really was like, oh, this is the House of Lords, essentially. Yeah, it um, straight up was the House of Lords. Yeah, the House of Capitalist Lords. So there was some change. And then, you know, the fact that to have a um, I guess you could say kind of a class trader like FDR, at least a partial class trader, I would say, because he broke with these plutocrats. Also, like the the amount of money that was accumulated probably in like the the 30 to 40 years leading up to the great depression was so fucking obscene that there almost had to be like a pushback or like a reaction <laughs> to it like at yeah. some point because it really was at a point it seems by by all accounts like america really was like not functioning it was like collapsing economically because of mm -hmm. the overheating of the stock market and everything and I, course i'm always open to theories of like well some of these plutocrats probably knew like 1929 was going to happen and like they made money off of it and basically like he does note that the the richest of the rich like the few thousand millionaire families in the country like very few of them actually got wiped out by the great depression some of the smaller like petty bourgeois people got wiped out and like tons of working people got wiped out but like if you were of kind of even close to the status of like not even a Morgan or a Rockefeller, but like even the second and third tier people, like you still had a bunch of money. You just probably like took a hit. And also like the economic health of your businesses was kind of like in the toilet and the stock prices were like no longer, they were just going down and down and down for like years. And it, it got to a point where there was like tens of millions of unemployed people and it was just spiraling. And it got to a point where, like, there was no alternative but to invoke government action 
And also, I guess when he talks about the 1920s, it is that was another period that feels very much like today with just the hyping of like fraudulent stocks and everything like that and getting middle class people like to basically, you know, invest in all these like spurious stocks and things like that. And then also encouraging like consumerism for the first time, kind of intersecting with like Edward Bernays uh, creation of like, you know, public relations and advertising and honing that where uh, also like layaway was invented, I think in the 1920s. So the idea of like pay for it now and then like pay for it in installments, yeah. like take it home now. So people that were like working class or middle class were like buying extravagant shit that maybe they couldn't fully afford and like that played over. But anyways, those are just some interesting things like later in the book, but maybe we should just run through kind of his, like his main through line, which is really hereditary wealth. And like the, yeah. the journey that it's gone on, because he even gives a little bit of credit to our, you know, <laughs> problematic founding fathers, particularly Jefferson, for mm-hmm. abolishing uh, entail, primogeniture and mortmain, right? Yeah. The dead man. hand. Right. Yeah. yeah mortmain. Right. <laughs> the dead hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it's easy. I think it's easy to. Like it's pretty easy to dunk on Jefferson because it's like, oh, cool words, cool words, bro. Like how many slaves did you own when you died? And like you didn't free yes. any of them. Cool. Like liberty. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. He is such a weird bourgeois, like ideal, like eccentric bourgeois idealist. I feel like Jefferson was. And mm-hmm. I think Myers kind of does capture that because he did abolish this thing that like most of the wealthiest people in particularly in Virginia, his home state, like absolutely fucking hated it. Which was, you know, abolishing, yeah, entail and primogeniture, which basically meant like, I think entail was like you could hand down your landed estate intact to your children and it couldn't be taxed or divvied up by the government or anything like that. Or like you couldn't force them to get rid yeah. of it ever. And it was it's just interesting. It, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see like Hamilton's role in this as well. You know, the great oh, yeah. enemy of Jefferson, someone who, yeah, I think as I mentioned before, like Moldbug loves. It's interesting that like uh, because like a shitty musical came out, like the sort of tastes of like Blue Check Libs and Mencius Moldbug have like converged in their weird, like right? adulation and devotion to Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm like a Jefferson stand, <laughs> and you know either. Larouche like, too. He sucks like too, a, a strange yeah, bedfellows. It's, it's true, yeah. It's not like Hamilton. yeah. Why does everyone? Everyone's converging, and they're. I mean, maybe we are truly moving into uh, an em- imperial phase uh, because everyone is like uniting in their love of Hamilton. Maybe, maybe all factions seem to be gathering around the the quote unquote woke POC Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> he was, yeah, he the was island, an immigrant. The Caribbean immigrant. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. Well, we talked about way back in volume one about the the concept of patroonship, of course, which is in like the Dutch colonies. And then, of course, uh, the the law of entail, which is kind of everywhere, a lot in the, the British colonies, basically, both the north and the south. It was around the time of the revolution. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson wrote here about entail or about mortmain the dead hand the transmission of this property from generation to generation in the same name raised up a distinct set of families who being privileged in law by the perpetuation of their wealth 
were thus formed into a patrician order, distinguished by the splendor and luxury of their establishments. From this order, too, the king habitually selected his counselors of state, the hope of which distinction devoted the whole corps to the interests and will of the crown. So they really, you know, dominated the colonies and had predominant influence over, like, the assemblies, um, which were basically the legislatures of the time, and everything else was kind of patterned on the British codes. So this is really like the, the Tory elites, basically. Yeah. Based in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so basically, hereditary prerogative, I'd say, was an early object of attack, like per, in the in the period leading up to the revolution. Um, mm-hmm. Myers writes, considerably before the revolution, sections of American sentiment had begun to express opposition to the glaring inequalities sanctioned and sustained by perpetuities. Such a stand was taken by the Delaware Assembly in 1752, although an act passed by it was actually nothing more than an act to dock entailed estates. The framers took occasion to make the preamble a denunciation of the whole institution of entail as introducing perpetuities and disabling owners from making provision for the younger branches of their families. So that's the primogeniture part. Only the firstborn son gets everything and all the other siblings can fuck off. So the outbreak of the American Revolution found an assortment of landowners in opposition and their positions were duly confiscated. Of the big landowners, however, a notable list hastened to espouse the revolutionary cause. Some were actuated by sincere, disinterested conviction. George Washington himself was an extensive landowner. But the motives of a conspicuous number were those of discreet self-interest. Before the revolution, they had been alarmed by the threatening attitude of at least one resident British governor. He, in a communication to his home government, had urged repressive measures to curtail the size of various great estates which, he critically pointed out, were much larger than any in England. Another motive dominantly influencing many of the American gentry was the aim to shield their estates from confiscation. Objectionable, if not odious, as were ideas and principles of the revolution to these families, they were more bent upon pursuing a policy by which they could retain their properties. Okay, so there is some self-interested kind of progressivism going on here. As like, we kind of low-key don't want the crown to like lop our estates in half or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, he notes that the popular slogan of the revolution was not only liberty, it was liberty and equality. This demand for equality of inherent rights was put into prompt action in accordance with the conditions, agitation, and understanding of the times. So in the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, uh, they embodied this mandatory order. The future legislature of the state shall regulate entails in such a manner as to prevent perpetuities. So I guess people in Philadelphia loved it. They'd long been restive under the domination of the great estate proprietors. One after another, succeeding to vast tracts by the capricious decree of accident of birth. <laughs> Even William Penn's estate was uh, divvied up, which was vast, notwithstanding his benign religious principles. He had quite a bunch of land for himself. That was Meyer's line, notwithstanding his benign yes. religious principles. <laughs> exactly. Funny. So this actually, this started happening. And before that, this group basically was, I mean, they certainly aspired to be an aristocracy. I guess the self, after that law was passed in the Constitution, the self-styled aristocracy of Philadelphia and other places was in a state of dismay at seeing first the one and then the other go. 
uh, which entail in primogeniture. These institutions were regarded by aristocracy as immemorial pillars of an ages-old established system which guaranteed the supremacy of the, quote, well-born and sharply distinguished them from the, quote, common sort. Without the compact preservation of estates, how, the question was either plaintively or angrily asked, could an aristocracy subsist? These strange upsetting innovations, it was declared, were endangering the stability of society and subverting the orders essential to a well-arranged social organization. He also talks about the uh, the, the fashion differences uh, at this time between the landed gentry and the commoners. Mm -hmm. You could basically tell somebody's class uh, immediately by the clothing. He says that the richest sumptuous apparel ever stood out in shining contrast to the meager clothes of what were scorned as the lower orders. Any man attaining wealth before the revolution, no matter by what methods acquired, was designated a gentleman, provided he dressed and lived in keeping with the expected ways, which were largely those of showy affectation and profuse expense, Along strutted the gentleman in his square-cut silk coat, lavender at one time, and any bright color at a later time. His expansive waistcoat had capacious pockets wherein he carried a gold snuff-box, which did frequent service. Silk breeches, now <laughs> light blue, and again some other color, encased his legs, and his long silk stockings descended into trim shoes adorned with silver buckles. On his wig or powdered hair was a dainty cocked hat ornamented with gold lace. The lady was a... <laughs> dainty cocked hat. The lady was arrayed uh, yeah. in, in flounced silk, uh, in flounced silk petticoat, light silk hood, with a tightly laced stomacher brilliant with gold braid, and she carried a fan which could be compressed into a baton. What with beauty spots decking her face, her flashing jewels, and the inevitable gold snuff box with mirror inside for repeated consultation, her elegant station as a real lady was beyond question. When they ostentatiously promenaded, there followed at a deferential distance the valet and maid. No one could fail to know their menial place, which was betokened by their regulation costume. The valet was soberly dressed in black hat, brown-colored coat, striped waistcoat, and brass buttons. His stockings were worsted, and on his heavy shoes were brass buckles, etc. They all had their costumes and had to play their role. I guess the Virginia breed of colonial aristocracies was... Uh, although not as pompous as that of New York, was the most vainglorious. In other places, the big estate owners were forward enough in priding themselves upon superiority of birth, but they were not so fulsomely extravagant as those of Virginia. There early came the embellished legend of, quote, first families, and there especially, too, the fabricators of fine genealogies and divisors of coats of arms did a lucrative business purveying to family vanity. So then, you know... In October 1776, Thomas Jefferson obtained leave yeah. from the Virginia legislature to introduce a bill abolishing entail, and the manorial owners were stirred yeah, to commotion. Yeah, they all were like, yeah, it's interesting because, like, you know, they all the other all the other people in the Virginia assemblies were pissed off about it. Like, they were not satisfied or happy. You know, like Jefferson, as much a piece of shit as he may have been, like these people were all slave owners too, mm-hmm. and it would have been way worse if they had been allowed to like persists in maintaining primogeniture and like the, and yes. this is like a uh, this uh, is definitely yeah. like a like a critical support moment for jefferson and others yeah, like definitely they, i think they got this um, one the, i mean it, it could only have been so much worse if they didn't do this like right 
at the at the yeah. jump, basically. Yeah, I know it's not cool to you know uh, give Thomas Jefferson any credit because he was an enemy of the most woke POC and our first black president, Alexander Hamilton. I know he was neither black nor yeah. president, but you know, like <laughs> here's what Jefferson said about the bill. He said uh, all this all that his bill sought, Jefferson explained, was to allow the holder to divide the property equally among his children. By a natural course of property dispersion, this would place them on a level with their fellow citizens. Repeal of entail laws, he further urged, would prevent the accumulation and perpetuation of wealth in select families and, at the same time, release great land areas from Mortmain, the clutch of the dead hand. His proposal met with the stiffest resistance. Likewise did his bill to abolish primogeniture. In the Virginia Assembly sat many men, either members of the first families, related to them or connected by self-interest. They vehemently assailed his bills as aiming at the overthrow of a traditional and time-honored system which had proved its value in conserving the equilibrium and proprieties of society. Hmm. Jefferson explain that this method requiring a special act of the assembly blah blah blah. yeah it's interesting that you know and overseas in europe they were like huh like except for in france where they had the revolution and they did similar things yeah. everyone in europe was like america is going to collapse like without primogeniture right? exactly. and more uh, and entail like they won't make it like not gonna make it exactly exactly (laughs) so then but then you know Um, they 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 had to fight about it took nine years to pass this bill but in 1785 mm -hmm. virginia abolished primogeniture so it did happen the next section is the quote well-bred aristocracy's rage uh infuriated (laughs) at its defeat aristocracy long harbored malevolent rancor against jefferson some of the old tories related one writer found it in their hearts to exult that he who had disappointed so many fathers lost his only son before it was a month old (laughs) jesus so when his baby died they like laughed about it they thought it was awesome because like you got rid of primogeniture so like you deserve this Okay. This is an interesting part that I I thought was uh, interesting. This is an interesting part that I thought was interesting. You know what I mean. Okay. So during the revolution, there was objection enough uh, to the continued use of florid official titles, such as Your Excellency. This is something that has stuck out to me, like from my like education, even like in elementary school. I remember like reading about people like trying to figure out what they should call George Washington. Like when you know, like should we call you? your majesty like should we call you like your grace like what you know and he was like miss mr president which is pretty stupid but you know i guess is better but anyway so the deep popular opposition was against titles or distinctions perpetuated by accident of birth it was feared not without reason that there was a part party scheming to introduce these this is interesting the hereditary plan embodied in the society of cincinnati organized in 1783 greatly stirred public feeling this society was composed of officers in the Continental Army, and membership was to descend to the eldest son. This is basically like, you know, the Sons of the Mayflower, Literally. like the Sons of the American Revolution, mm-hmm. but they wanted it to be, like, more, even more official than that. Yeah, it's uh, still yeah, around literally. today. It was this later feature that evoked furious denunciation as one establishing a kind of caste perpetuity. What, it was asked, the sons done to deserve distinction. Let them earn their own, as their fathers did. The vehement outcry was successful. Most members quit the society, which in time became dormant. However, to take a long jump, it was revived in 1893. 
By 1902, all of its state branches were active, and a chosen number were complacently able in unison to plume themselves upon their forebears' deeds. Yeah. That's interesting that, like, initially they were like, what the hell? Like, no, like, you don't get any, like, special recognition because you're over your father did. Yeah. Like, but then, like, a century later, people were like, all these Yankees, like, sneakily, like, like re- went to reviving Yale, it. like, basically revived it. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like you'll you'll yeah. find many insurance men um, in the ranks of the uh, society of the Cincinnati. Probably also like a bunch of yeah. Freemasons, um, you know, Cincinnati, etc. True. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it gets uh, even more uh, interesting here. The Federal Constitutional Convention disposed of any possibility of the title conferment by an inhibiting section, but the rich as a class did not change their views or bearing. They held themselves supremely aloof from the common people. In every field and function, they asserted a right of preeminence. They possess the same feelings and are under the same motives as an hereditary nobility. So ran a description of them in 1788. Four years later, an important American magazine, uh, which was the American Museum or Universal Magazine, I guess, uh, gave warning of a subtle propaganda to mold public opinion everywhere in favor of an hereditary nobility. Such an order, the propaganda sought to persuade, was essential in giving repose and éclat to a nation. A permanent, exalted rank would diffuse lasting splendor. America's prohibition of titles had been followed by the French Revolution's abolition in 1790. In other countries, peoples were reverential to peerages. With the guillotine working at full speed in France, no whisper of any such propaganda was there heard. Evidently, it was aimed at America. Enthusiastically hailing the French Revolution, many zealots in America acclaimed it as ushering in the final liberation of man from aristocratic oppression. In New York City, affixing the tricolor to watch chains and singing of the Carmagnol were common. And Jacobin clubs, amateurly imitating the Paris model, were in perfervid operation. Uh, Yes, but they're not of the same caliber, perhaps, today. (laughs) But uh, their fiery souls did not have to live much longer to see their illusions shattered. They beheld Napoleon blasting his way to a power soon to become dictatorial, and under him arise a new glittering nobility with the titles of princes, dukes, counts, barons, and chevaliers. It is kind of like, it, it, it's like one little scrap to hang on to about like not being completely disgusted by like American history is like some people really did want, like from the very founding, if you're talking about like what are real American values, it seems like most people, including our in many ways, like sus founding fathers, like recognize this as kind of like an evil thing. And I mean, as it goes on a little later, like some of the quotes by Jefferson, well, about he starts to notice later in his life that the financial institutions created by based Hamilton are uh, getting more <laughs> and more dangerous. But, you know, every state yeah, eventually by like very the, base. Yeah, he kind of defends. I mean, the thing is, like Andrew Jackson was like, you know, genocidal and like not a good person. But again, you know, he destroyed the National Bank, which at least in in Myers estimation was like not good. But that's like part of the Hamiltonian legacy that, you know, Lin-Manuel would have us exalt to this day. Yeah. Oh, another thing that he does mention, which is uh, kind of, I guess, a relatively progressive thing American did to the rage of the aristocrats was... uh, Ending an age-old birth privilege. They said, at the same time, steps were taken to end another condition largely dependent upon accident of birth. For centuries, education had been denied to the children of the poor. 
In Europe, the preachment was that the lower orders should be content with the lot in which God had placed them and not venture to look higher. To a wide extent, this exhortation was repeated in America. It said, up to the time of the revolution, students in Harvard College were classed and given place wholly according to their social rank. And even after the actual custom was dropped, the spirit long persisted. Ted Kaczynski knows that. So then eventually during the revolution, some states made provisions for the establishment of what were called common schools. But the opposition of the rich long delayed execution of the plans. One strong underlying ground for this hostility was the set disinclination to afford any educational opportunities to the mass of people. If the mass thus rose, then the formerly benefiting few would no longer be able to claim the sole distinction of culture. Another ground more publicly avowed by the rich was the objection to paying taxes for the education of children other than their own. In state after state, official bodies constantly had to present arguments in the effort to overcome this opposition. So, you know, states were basically able to start uh, establishing like public schools, um, which, you know, the rich, if they had had their way, would have absolutely never had. So that I mean, that's really like the meta theme of this is like they've been grousing since the revolution that this like these little aspects of like democratic, like popular, you know, administration or government do exist and they're as inadequate as they are. They're outraged. Yeah, this is like part of what's like so galling to me that like the most I mean, I know it was on his podcast and not something everyone listens to, but it's just crazy to me that like the most popular. I mean, again, I'm like, you know, I can hear Jason Horsley's, uh, you know, British voice uh, chastising me in my head of being like, why are you surprised? You should know that the globalists (laughs) are doing this. But, um, you know, like it's just it still is bizarre to me that like on Fox, like a Fox News host, the most popular cable news host of all people, would have like someone on to spend an entire hour monologuing about how democracy is bad. Like, it's crazy. Like, you know, it's like, again, I have no illusions about like the idea that we live in like a true democracy and like many of these like oligarchic features like still exist and we're predominantly a plutocracy or an oligarchy. But like, you know, I mean, I often I will give uh, Shadi Hamid a little bit of credit because uh, I think he had a pretty good point uh, that, you know, I often think about when I sort of think about the the critique of democracy, you know, from some quarters, which is that if you look at like the, the Muslim countries, what are the ones that caved when Jared Kushner came to Colin and was like, we want you to normalize relations with Israel. It was the monarchies. It wasn't the democratic ones. The democratic countries, Algeria, Syria. Tunisia, like they're not going to go for Iran. They're not going to go for that. Syria, Iran. So, yeah, they uh, go for it. No, that's but, true, actually. It's yeah, the, it's it's the like old these. school monarchies. And I think that's. Well, no, de- no, no country that is like a democracy in any way or in any way, like, you know, it's like even a little bit responsive to what the people want in the Muslim world would ever be like we're gonna be friends with israel i feel now. like even like, it's like saudi arabia you know put it to a, a popular vote like should we be friends with israel oh, for sure no they would definitely say no and like i don't think that the monarchy should be like surprised by that since they weren't like all about promoting israel as a good thing <laughs> like you know they've probably done a lot to uh stoke even unfair uh ideas about jews in sure. general uh sure. even like, though they've so, been sec- we know they've been um, secret buddies uh in the kind of underworld yes although they years. are definitely secret buddies yeah it's weird to me that like there's this like push like i mean in some respects i get it because like we you know our democracy sucks like it's not really a democracy 
but at the same time like the sort of like throwing up your hands and being like let's bring back entail let's make elon musk king that's fucking it's like you right know, or something like started. that i mean that that's where it's weird where it's yeah. like you get like Ain't adrian comstock for mule like the, the second and then you get like tucker carlson who's like the basically i i i don't know i don't know the specifics of his will but i know that his like stepmother is the heiress of like the swanson frozen food fortune so like he's not only <laughs> he he not only has like a sus dad who like ran voice of america but like his dad married into like a great american fortune essentially so he's like kind of connected mm-hmm. to that world very like extremely intimately but he's also i don't know he has this weird like now he's pretending to be kind of like an enemy of it it's very odd but he still wears boat shoes i'm it's so yeah confusing. i mean you know like what his real game is it's all an act yeah. but sorry i hope uh yeah I, I hope we're not gonna start bleeding subscribers because uh, one of our few subscribers got uh one of our few subscribers to leave a note i don't know if you saw this but we got a note saying that they were mad that i uh, c- uh called tucker a fascist but sorry i i hate tucker i will continue to talk shit about him on the He's podcast so. um go, yeah. go in peace but you know subscriber. like just to give it an aspect of like how the uh the the first family types like felt about all this stuff like you know public education and stuff under the section here a dress no longer regulated by born station <gasps> the horror out to went arbitrary distinctions yeah. in dress after the revolution differences now existing were purely those of money circumstances and not birth station american democratic ideas and the influence of the french revolution cast out the pomposities of the quote high-toned born gentleman Except in the case of some elders addicted to past habits, no longer could social position be proclaimed by velvet coats garnished with gold lace, by large sleeves supporting ruffles, by embroidered vests, short breeches, wigs, or fastidiously powdered hair, and buckle-adorned shoes. More than one member of the old class wrote sadly of that blissful departed time when everyone dressed according to, quote, degree, and when ordinary folk (laughs) never failed to doff their hats to gentlemen. I'm sure they're silk hats. The, le- <laughs> <so> sad, <laughs> the leveling instead of stealing it from them and running off. Uh, the leveling process reached the stage at which, in later years, a relic of the former order sighed over memories of that inrushing equality, which made it, quote, impossible by any outward costume to distinguish masters from servants. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Oh, though everyone's wearing no, a communist gray jumpsuit. It's horrible. Uh, America's going to hell yeah, in a bucket. It's awful. You can't distinguish masters <laughs> like from how servants. See my slaves. Oh yeah. no! Wow. I mean, uh, I feel so bad for them. Exactly. Um,
Elvis Myers moves on to chapter three, succeeded by vested privilege. And I feel like this is really kind of at the core of the argument of the entire book, of the point he's trying to get across, is that these aspirations or the self-conception um, of this kind of class of people as an aristocracy never fully went away, although it was seriously diminished and challenged, you know, in the period of of the American Revolution and right afterwards, but it eventually finds a new avenue in the form of the chartered corporation that leads all the way to today. So he writes that uh, while one class of perpetuities was going out, another was fast coming in. Intent upon dispossessing hereditary privilege, most Americans at the time saw no hereditary dangers in corporation charters. These seemed to have no potentialities of vesting powers in an individual or family. A group of men organizing a company and then obtaining legislative permission to carry on a particular business was apparently far removed from anything conducive to the transmission of individual or family aggrandizement. Numbers of leading men who had been foremost or active in the movement against entail and primogeniture took this view and were themselves promoters of various companies. And there's evidence in the records that while granting corporation perpetuities, official bodies were exceedingly wary of granting any right which might redound as a personal or family perpetuity. To all appearances, a company was on an entirely different basis. It had its stock issues, which thus afforded distribution of ownership and a somewhat wide radius of participation in its affairs. This was the accepted theory. Supplementing it was the all-pervasive outlook that in no other way could the country's finances be managed and its resources adequately developed. To raise the necessary capital, the pooling of individual funds was needed in the form of stock subscriptions, and to secure an investment, permanence of rights had to be guaranteed. So his next section is unperceived hereditary features. In the case (laughs) of banks, a different line was often taken. As depositories of large amounts of cash with corresponding sway over business, they were looked upon as arbitrary wielders of money power. It was this aspect, and not any concern about perpetuity, which frequently induced lawmaking bodies to put a time limit upon charters. Side by side with time-restricted charters came forth a succession of other charters with no time bounds whatever. That these were perpetuities with continuing power over generations to come did not impress itself upon public thought. Neither did the likely prospect that from these charters would develop an hereditary economic power, always corporate and often family. The era was one of great political and social transformations. These, and not economic considerations, engrossed attention. So, yeah, that was basically... People people didn't really see the potential of what it could become, though it's almost hilarious looking back today as like... Oh, yeah. a corporate! Uh, the idea that a corporation couldn't be like dominated by one family that like, <laughs> is kind of hilarious. Um, yeah, and it will get more absurd the more um, the more it goes on. He talks a little bit about the origins of like the Bank of the United States, like where it came from. So, because they needed a bank to finance the Revolutionary Army's needs. So George Clymer of Philadelphia, uh, the ancestor of Charlotte Clymer. Yeah. Just kidding. kidding. I did check, though. I did check. Um, But uh, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, No, no, no. 
No proof of that. Induced the Continental Congress in 1781 to incorporate the Bank of North America. He had married a daughter of Reese Meredith, a leading Philadelphia merchant and shipper, and later engaged with Samuel Meredith, his brother-in-law, in a large mercantile business. So they were appointed by Congress to receive subscriptions for the bank, but it was very loosely organized at first. So then in 1782, the Pennsylvania legislature granted a new charter which uh, limited the bank's capital to, quote, 10 million Spanish milled dollars and no more, basically $400,000 U.S. Some of the most foremost Philadelphia lawyers and merchants made up the uh, board of directors. And let's see, just uh, jumping forward a little bit, uh, there were some scandals around it. So, like, basically, it, it ultimately, though, succeeded. And so the successful handling of the Pennsylvania legislature by the Bank of North America encouraged a run of other assiduous promoters seeking not only other bank charters, but also charters for canal, turnpike, land, insurance, and other companies. So great was this rush that already in 1791, the Pennsylvania legislature was driven into complaining that most of its time was consumed in enacting these incorporating laws. And this avid scramble went on in other states as well. In 1784, Alexander Hamilton organized his Bank of New York yeah. with a capital of $500,000. And yeah. But then the opposition became formidable. Um, to the creation of companies with small or moderate capital, there was no hostility. But a bank with so huge a capital loomed as an ominous moneyed influence. Swayed by this intense feeling, the legislature feared to grant any bank charter. This withholding of legislative sanction did not deter Hamilton. Without having received any lawful authority to do so, he opened his bank and kept it in operation. From its startup to his death, he was a director, personally controlled its affairs, and when he became U.S. Secretary of Treasury, he made it his favorite agent. Not until March 1791 was he able to secure a charter from the New York legislature. Partisan passion was now running high, and Hamilton's Federalist associates dominating the legislature agreed that a bank in New York City would be a most efficient auxiliary to the Federalist cause, and that was precisely the way in which the Bank of New York was used. Having a monopoly of banking powers in New York City, it was undisguisedly run as a Federalist bank. It loaned money to its friends and partisan adherents and punished opponents. No matter how reputable a merchant was or how badly he needed a loan, it was peremptorily refused if he supported the Democratic then called the Republican Party. As leader of this party in New York City, Aaron Burr, no. uh, critical support, um, <laughs> naturally, naturally saw that this financial terrorism would have to be stopped. The only way of doing so was by the organization of a competitive bank. But how was the charter to be obtained from a Federalist legislature? Burr's artfully resourceful mind devised a way. Yellow fever epidemics had ravaged New York City. They were caused, such was the belief at that time, by polluted water. Taking advantage of public perturbation, Burr came forth with what happened, what would appear a measure wholly for the general good. He applied to the legislature for a charter, allowing the Manhattan Company to supply pure water to New York City. A project, to all intents so benevolent, was enthusiastically welcomed by the Federalist-ridden legislature. It accepted the bill at its face value and passed it with a self-congratulatory sense of having done a most laudable service. Not until the bill was enacted was the charter's real content discovered by the Federalists to their utter dismay. A clause, deftly and obscurely hidden in the massive verbiage, empowered the Manhattan Company to engage in banking. Oh my god. Well, there must have been way more behind their fucking beef when they got involved in the duel than just like, oh, you, you disrespected it wasn't just me. because Aaron Burr was jealous uh, or something? Uh, um, it wasn't just it sounds because like they were involved in some high financial combat. And um, 
Hamilton, you are simply too confident and just a great man, and I am jealous of you. <laughs> you, Aaron <laughs> you know, Burr, I, sir, I do. Yeah, prefer, Aaron sir. Burr, uh, sir, you are uh, a socialist, and stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Myers does note that both the Manhattan Company and the Bank of New York still exist at the time of his writing, long after these two uh, badass rapping legislators passed away. <laughs> their names entirely forgotten. Not quite. Uh, these banks retain their identity and power, conferred by an antiquated bit of paper. Proudly does the Bank of New York point to its long record as, quote, New York's first bank, established in 1784, and proclaim its financial strength by its figures of capital, surplus and undivided profits, and its marshalling, in 1939, of nearly $219 million of resources. Likewise, with publicity, pride does the more powerful bank, of the Manhattan Company hark back to its birth in 1799 and attest its solidity by rows of imposing figures balancing its assets, which in 1939 were more than 642 million. There was just a rush for charters. Everyone loves it. The next section is called An Obnoxious uh, Moneyed did Aristocracy. You ever, um, <laughs> uh, did you ever read that Gore Vidal book? I feel like we maybe talked about Gore Vidal being sus in a past episode. I don't know well, what his I don't know if he's is. sus, though, because like he was kind of a 9-11, like, truther and christopher hitchens like dunked on him and so oh I really i didn't know that about kind of in his later life he got smeared as a conspiracy theorist by people that used to like love him yeah yeah i thought maybe we mentioned him before and i wasn't sure if it was like in some sort of like implication in some weird thing I forget where yeah i mean i guess he was a scientologist was he a scientologist really? oh no but he was critical of scientology yet he condemned the treatment of scientology by germany all right so never mind that was fake news but yeah he did you ever read that book he wrote burr where like alexander hamilton was like grime a worm tongue like whispering in like a senile george washington's ear like manipulating him like all the time and like no but that sounds kind of good yeah <laughs> we could read it yeah, yeah. Uh, we need um, we need a counter hamilton you know yeah I, I don't, um, i'm not trusting it so i mean that musical was based on like a like rob chernow like airport book like yeah, you know exactly. the kind of thing that like it's basically like on the level of like killing lincoln or whatever but this musical theater fool like found it and was like wow this is where you learn history from like i'm doing scholarship reading one book and like you know then <laughs> exactly he just like yeah. shoveled it back into people's mouths and they like ate it up i don't know yep. why i'm talking about hamilton we were doing anyways yeah, uh, yeah. Well, okay. he ends up dead probably did something to uh yeah could uh, critical support you know, <laughs> Aaron Burr might have been bad, too. But anyways, you know, yeah. once again, sometimes you just got to settle things in a duel. All right. Yes. Yeah, so okay. so everyone starts chartering banks and various corporations and stuff like it, when Young America is founded. Now, Myers writes from 1814 to 1817, Thomas Jefferson repeatedly denounced the irresponsible operations of the state banks and the uprise of a corporation aristocracy, which they fostered, writing to Philip Matsey in August 1815, he summarized, quote, A parcel of mushroom banks have set up in every state, have filled the country with their notes, and have thereby banished all specie. A general crush is daily expected when this trash will be lost in the hands of the holders. In a previous letter to John Adams, Jefferson declared that the bank, quote, mania has seized by its delusions and corruptions all the members of our governments, general, special, and individual. Damn. So he was he was alarmed. Myers says by 1814, these state banks 
had poured forth and shoved into circulation between 200 and 300 million of their promissory notes, which in most cases had only the most precarious backing or none at all. However, having loaned this paper as money to a wide list of landlords or land speculators, factory owners, and others, the bank stood in the position of creditors with power to foreclose or otherwise seize. The existing bankruptcy law passed by Congress in 1800 was borrowed from the English system with every provision for the benefit of the creditor and none whatsoever for the debtor. Wow. So then like by using this like fake monopoly money, they could like seize real productive assets. Cool. So Jefferson was very, very apparently very pissed off about all of this. He says indignant at the outpouring of quote wildcat currency and the booty yielded Jefferson explosively commented quote thus by the dupery of our citizens and the tame acquiescence of our legislators. The nation is plundered of two or three hundred million dollars treble the amount of debt contracted in the Revolutionary War and which instead of redeeming our liberty has been expended on sumptuous houses, carriages, and dinners. Jefferson brand, branded the bank paper mongers as, quote, avaricious adventurers, burdening all property with their swindling profits. He repeated his indictment of those bankers as, quote, usurers and swindlers. In a letter to James Monroe in 1815, he had urged, quote, the dominion of the banks must be broken or it will break us. Again to George Logan in 1816, I hope we shall crush in its birth the aristocracy of our moneyed corporations, which dare already to challenge our government to a trial of strength and bid defiance to the laws of our country, also on the need of shattering a moneyed aristocracy springing from the banks, he repeatedly exhorted prompt action. I mean, kind of spitting some, I don't know how much he actually did about it, but seemed to be pretty accurate um, read on the situation, I would say. Yeah. Um, they're all users. Why are they spending every all this money on sumptuous houses and <laughs> dinners? <laughs> dinners and whatever so um so i guess the crash that was predicted by jefferson came in 1819 20 yeah flyly weeks bank week banks had to suspend or close and many factories shut down uh workers wages uh plummeted 30,000 men were jobless and precipitated into sheer pauperism in various cities charity soup kitchens afforded the only food obtainable by the famished and it was absolutely horrible so then this is where the first uh we moved to chapter four the movement against hereditary wealth and this is interesting and it kind of harkens back to today i think where you see the first organized opposition politically to these money mongers yeah. and these banking elitists but it's also i think the first time you see what you maybe could classify as like an american like right-wing populism populist reaction is this like this. when he talks about the working man's party? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And they like flipped out. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like they, they in some ways they identified, you know, some uh, valid targets of criticism and even advocated for, you know, maybe certain policies which uh, were one could classify them as progressive. But then they do something that we've seen again and again throughout history where <laughs> they start aiming that like scapegoat gun and they find mm -hmm. some very tantalizing targets, which I think uh, we could summar summarize in a minute. But uh, but basically, actually, even before we get to the so-called uh, know-nothings, um, we should talk about the uh, the mechanics slash working men's party in New York in the yeah. 1820s. This is like the first kind of progressive, uh, popular kind of party of like working men to ever exist. So there was a new party basically proposing the abolition of hereditary wealth itself. 
came from 1829 from a section of society which had long been repressed and politically powerless. This also talks about how uh, basically around, the, I think, the late 1820s was when, yeah, by 1821, because we remember right after the revolution, the right to vote was pretty much restricted to property-owning white men, right? Yeah. But by, I guess, uh, by 1821, property voting qualifications were made in only four states, New York, North Carolina, Virginia, and Rhode Island. And then New York got rid of the property qualifications that year. So the first time working men or you no. know, regular regular white men could uh, could and vote. And of course, this unleashed a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> the first MAGA hordes were descended upon these deplorables, came into the political sphere. So... Yes. Um, so it was uh so it was this party the working men's party it was launched in 1828 um its inception in various cities was kind of like spontaneous and not really that well coordinated at first like old party leaders thought it was kind of just a sentimental outburst of you know inexperienced men but in 1829 in new york city the working men's party came forth full-fledged and militant. So they started passing these, like announcing these resolutions called for, quote, removing the distinctions which now exist to the detriment and inconvenience of society. It said the ones in Boston, their resolutions were worded in a way, were not worded in a way to alarm the wealthy. <laughs> but the mm -hmm. working men in New York, the, the working men party in New York was more radical and they were outspoken and specific. They said, inasmuch as riches derived from land and all the discriminations allowed to landowners had long been a crying subject of popular agitation, the Working Men's Party devoted its attention to this phase of hereditary wealth. Moreover, feudal conditions such as prevailed on the Van Rensselaer estate gave additional emphasis to its pronouncement. Quote, resolved in the opinion of this meeting, and this is 1829, that the first appropriation of the soil of the state to private and exclusive possession was eminently and barbarously unjust, that it was substantially feudal in character inasmuch as those who received enormous and unequal possessions were lords and those who received little or nothing were vassals. Having made this timely and pertinent approach, understood then by everybody, the resolutions went on to press the main point, quote, that hereditary transmission of wealth on the one hand and poverty on the other has brought down to the present generation all of the evils of the feudal system and that, in our opinion, is the prime source of all our calamities. Next section, alarm of the possessing classes. <laughs> they didn't um, like this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, no, I guess cr not. great commotion when this was published in the newspapers. It was denounced as unprecedented, wild, and anarchic, threatening the very foundation of society. Men who had become or were <laughs> becoming rich from banking, commerce, and trade felt that their status was imperiled. Although the proposal seemed wholly aimed at the hereditary transmission of wealth from land, what guarantee was there that it would not later be expanded due to demand for inhibiting yeah. the hereditary passing of wealth amassed from any and all sources? It had all the ominous significance of an entering wedge. No. Oh, God. So terrible. So, yeah. Awful. At this time, uh, also, like, laws, it was illegal to organize a labor union, um, and calling a strike was considered a criminal conspiracy. Hours of work mm -hmm. were cruelly long, usually 12 hours a day, often more. There was no mechanics lien law to prevent a contractor from swindling the men out of their wages. Unable to this pay even a, a slight uh, debt, the impoverished were thrown in jail. <laughs> like, yeah, right. We've talked about this in the past uh -huh. chapters. Uh, this is a good part about 
the working men's party, which was not, you know, on the same level as like the no nothings. They were mostly like, you know, pretty. Uh, no, working men's party was oriented. pretty, pretty badass. Uh, like they're they pretty legit. Pretty based, yeah, this is uh, we didn't really go into like the I mean, Gustavus Myers is a whole other book that he even references in this called The History of Tammany Hall, which I think like we went into a little bit in past episodes, but like not fully, which is, is interesting. I feel like we should maybe go into that at, so, at some point. But anyway, so. Hurriedly meeting, these bankers and other members of the Tammany General Committee decided upon a plan. Runners were sent out to every war with instructions to urge the unity of all opponents of the Workingmen's Party. It was too late to merge parties as such, but individual members could unite to crush the common enemy. And since the Tammany organization offered the best opportunities for victory, the plan called for a coalesced support of its ticket. Nor was omitted a liberal distribution of cash to buy votes. At the same time, a public appeal was issued to all good men and self-respecting laborers not to stultify themselves by voting for a party led by a set of irresponsibles. Long having been the mouthpiece of the rich anti-democratic elements, the staid New York Evening Post overnight shifted from its orthodox Whig position and supported Tammany. Uh, there's a new one to the sun. Yep. We've heard this many times. Never before had the unswerving upholder of aristocracy given the least favorable notice to the underclass, and usually had not even deigned to recognize their existence. But now the Evening Post addressed a solemn appeal to the really worthy mechanics who might have accidentally associated with the Workingmen's Party. In its customary ponderous style, the newspaper counseled them to quit a body de disseminating such sinister doctrines and proclaiming such iniquitous designs. The second day's voting caused redoubled excitements. It's interesting that they were voting over two days. Like, that mm. in itself is, like, a fucking recipe for absolute, Bribery. like, corruption. I mean, just imagine if, like, this 2020 presidential election was held over two days. I mean, it kind of was. It kind of was. I mean, anyway, isn't that the uh, argument, right? The uh, uh, mail-in voting. Mm, yeah, despite a campaign of vituperation in the face of a junction against it, the Workingmen's Party had further role of a formidable vote. We were surrounded by danger, not only to the party, but to the country, blazed the Tammany organ the next day. The working ticket got up by a few fanatics, supported by those who know not its origin, and led on by person without religion or principle, is sweeping everything before it. Look at it and ask yourself if such men should be chosen as legislators for the first city in the Union. <laughs> Ooh, it's so scary. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah so they were they were sorry. basically they weren't able to really gain power. I think and they eventually kind of uh dissolved, you know, and at the same time it mentions here the Chemical Bank of New York uh was chartered in eighteen twenty four and they've gone on to do, they're still uh, dominated by the Golay family, another first family. And they're still around today. I think they were involved in like financing Liberia during the Cold War. Um and oh, awesome. yeah, very awesome. And uh, there's a little mention of uh, the bribery and corruption uh, related to the passage of the Aetna Fire Insurance Company's charter in 1820, mm. uh, which cost 20,000 in stock and 20,000 in cash. And um, yeah, certain legislators, uh, let's see, blah, blah, blah. They got the charter, but lots of people were bribed to get it. And of course, that's where JP Morgan's dad was on the board of that company. Then we kind of get on to like chapter five when Andrew Jackson gets into power in this decade and he yeah. picks a fight with the Bank of the United States, which I guess the charter had expired. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it was up for being renewed. And Andrew Jackson said he was going to veto it. And yeah, he came to blows with Nicholas Biddle and everything. Yes, that's right. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. President Andrew Jackson's fight to overthrow the Bank of the United States symbolized the popular feeling against an outstanding moneyed aristocracy entrenched in a single dominating institution, uh, you know, which, of course, established by based Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Questions as to the charge's constitutionality coming up back in 1791 uh, when it had first been empowered by Congress. President George Washington requested the written opinions of members of his cabinet one of two of these thought it was unconstitutional. Thomas Jefferson regarded it as a violation of statutes against Mortmont and other laws and in contravention of the federal constitution and as creating a monopoly of power over and above any reach of state laws. However, the Bank of the United States was allowed to establish itself. Thank you. Wow. And uh, Jefferson, now president of the United States, was impelled to write Albert Gallatin, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. This institution is one of the most deadly hostility existing against the principles and form of our constitution. An institution like this, penetrating by its branches every part of the Union, acting by command and in phalanx, may, in a critical moment, upset the government. <laughs> no, it was awesome. It was totally Thank you, awesome. Hamilton. It <clears throat> ruled. Yeah, so, and business people in general basically really wanted this charter to be revived. Starting yes. in 1830, Biddle yeah. started... I mean, really, the only mistake was not having it be based on Bitcoin. <laughs> um, exactly. And based yeah. Elon will be able to start a new crypto He'll bank. He'll bring it back. He'll be the Elon <laughs> Exactly. Of he is our Hamilton. Our government. Okay. So, yeah, there was, there was a lot of beef about... I don't know if he talked so much about, like, what was really, like, Jackson's, like, motivations for doing so or, like, who backed him. In his hatred of the bank, he says, in denouncing the Bank of the United States as a corrupt monopoly, Jackson did not overstate the case. He had also the fullest justification in charging that the bank used its funds and patronage to further its own designs and the interests of the party, favoring its perpetuation. From his stately office or from his mansion with its six columns like a Greek temple, Biddle issued his orders and communications. These supplied instructions to his host. A Greek temple? It's us. Uh, what the fuck is that all about, Biddle? Mm, um, it's one thing to have stately columns or like Greco-Roman architecture. He I don't had know, like an Epstein temple like in Connecticut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have an Epstein temple? Yeah, yeah uh, Biddle railed at Jackson yeah. as an ignorant man bent upon mischief and against Jackson's administration as, quote, a combination of political gamblers and gambling politicians against which all honest men should exert themselves the vicious abuse heaped upon jackson and many editorial columns was only a reflection and enlargement of that contained in biddle's utterances and correspondence so i guess he had a lot of sway in the media the new york courier and the inquirer despite tammany being you know aligned with the democrats oh yeah that was interesting it was aligned with the democrats and the tammany machine um, and was supporting men pledged to Jackson's reelection, but in 1831 it made a sudden turnabout. It announced its support of Bank of the United States candidates. Its ostensible reason was its dread of the quote fearful consequences of revolution, anarchy, and despotism, which assuredly would ensue if Jackson were reelected. Inasmuch as New York City was a pivotal point in the campaign to reelect Jackson, this precipitate change made a national sensation. The real reason for the shift was uncovered later by a congressional investigation. Webb and Noah, owners of the Courier and Inquirer, had directly and indirectly borrowed $50,000 of the Bank of the United States' money from Biddle, who now had peremptorily called them to time. So I guess, you know, he's just buying the meat, buying the Washington Post and telling yeah. them. It's like, it would be funny if, like, Something like like the Washington Post just like flipped and became like a pro-Trump paper. I guess that's just what happened with Twitter. It went from like the lib space yeah. to now it's like the the libertarian free speech zone. I guess, <laughs> Maybe. although I don't know. Like, is Twitter like a liberal 
space? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's... I mean, it's dominated I guess maybe more by, so it's than different like than a newspaper. It's, it's it's not exactly a one to one comparison, but it, it's definitely been yeah, dominated. I mean, I guess that they were they banned the Hunter Biden story and they banned Trump. It's been the, yeah for a couple that, of, ever since they banned Trump. It's been leaned on. I mean, the blue checks have always had a lot of power and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but like, there's plenty of conservative blue checks. I mean, there are, but like they they just know. they just complain about blue checks while having a blue check next to their name. Yeah, no, like, I know they do. I know they do. But, but, like, you're like, you're a blue check. Like, shut the fuck up. You're a blue check. Like, I feel like Twitter is full of, I don't know, I guess they're all being shadow banned, but I don't know. I don't know. We'll see if the if Twitter actually meaningfully changes or if this even happens, because I don't know. I feel like it's, they're always going to have a persecution complex. You know what? This is my prediction. If he buys Twitter, okay. like, they're going to decide that, like, he's against them somehow. Not to pick too much on, like, you know, my conservative brethren here. And they have a persecution complex, you My know, school. I mean, libs sometimes fall into that as well, but like, they're not going to be able to get let go of like feeling persecuted. I mean, that is like, even when Trump was in the white house, like they still felt persecuted. So yeah, they're always going to yeah. feel persecuted no, they will. on Twitter or they elsewhere. Will. And libs do the same thing in some cases, but. That's my that's my prediction. They do. Yeah. So Biddle was trying to manipulate everything in New York City in this fight for the bank to be renewed. Um, but they found a stalwart opponent in the New York Evening Post. I guess there was a poet <coughs> named William Cullen Bryant <laughs> had become the editor in chief and part proprietor. And with him was associated William Leggett, known for his advanced views, humanitarian ideas, and profound sympathy with the aims of the common people. So these guys, I guess, were not backing down from Biddle's bullshit. So he wrote, I guess Leggett wrote a pretty popular op-ed, or he wrote a series of editorials about the bank issue. The fight waged by the Bank of the United States for a recharter was nothing more or less than an attempt, quote, of money to tyrannize over men. Another of his editorials defined the nature of the contending parties. The one party is for a popular government, the other for an aristocracy. The one party is composed in a great measure of the farmers, mechanics, laborers, and other producers of the middling and lower classes. And the other are the consumers, the rich, the proud, the privileged, of those who, if our government were converted into an aristocracy, would become our dukes, lords, marquises, and baronets. Having in mind the prohibition of titles of nobility and the abolition of primogeniture and entail, Leggett further wrote, of all the countries on the face of the earth, this is the one where the claims of wealth and aristocracy are the most unfounded, absurd, and ridiculous, with no claim to hereditary distinctions, with no exclusive rights except what they derive from monopolies, with no power of perpetuating their estates and their prosperity. In their posterity. The assumption of aristocratic heirs and claims is supremely ridiculous, and yet a man becomes rich among us, he sets up for wisdom he despises the poor and ignorant he sets up for patriotism he is your only man who has a stake in the community and therefore the only one who has a voice in the state so okay spitting some fire i wrote here a uh, more nft crypto uh comparison <laughs> just moving along here on page 69 yes. let me see what i what i marked oh is this about the art shit it, because the the discussion of art in this book is interesting and I think worth including. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we um, should get to that real quick. Oh, yeah, I guess I was right. The uh, There was the Equal Rights Party kind of after that tried to get some of that like working men energy. And I guess 
They presented the simple language, the power of charters, and greatly helping to produce the one and accomplish the other. These chartered moneylenders have flooded us with nominal money, which we are justified in contemptuously calling shin plasters. Vast fortunes have been accumulated in a short time by these bankers. And how? Because they were allowed to issue at will paper tokens called money, and equally at will to charge anywhere from moderate to enormous rates of interest. And, oh yeah, new weapons for oppression. They had swaggering pretensions to exclusive purchases. The working classes of modern times are kept in debasement and poverty, they said, in 1837. Aristocrats have discovered that charters are safer weapons than swords, and that can't falsehood and hypocrisy serve all the purposes of a highwayman's pistol while they leave their victims alive and fit for future exactions. They're vampires. Here as elsewhere, man is the slave of money. Law rules the poor, and money rules the law. Lombard Street and its precincts in London govern Wall Street, and Wall Street governs our legislative bodies. It's all the city of London, folks. Then, okay, moving along to chapter 7, where we get to, if we just want to jump, he talks about some other movements that rose up in opposition to these bankers, and that's where we really get the hostility against uh, immigrants for the first time. And at this yeah. at this point, it is basically Irish immigrants that arouse um, this uh, this anger and funnel a lot of like the populist rage. I guess the pa- we have to say the Panic of eighteen thirty seven was one of the first big kind of panics that would sort of happen periodically throughout the century that kind of despoiled everybody and made people on Wall Street even more money and kind of heightened the contradictions and the resentment for uh, these uh, emerging corporate tycoons. He's saying that there were some kind of like, you know, based movements in the North uh, of like proto-labor movements in uh, like 1848. I think that might have been the foundation of a, a newer working men's party where they they decried the domineering ascendancy of the moneyed oligarchy of the North as hostile to the interests of labor and incompatible with the preservation of popular rights. So, you know, they were calling for a labor party and then also saying the despotic attitude of the slave power of the South was equally hostile to the standards and aspiration of labor. But side by side with this movement, there won on another of a very different type, rabid in its intensity. This roused to fury every sentiment of nationalistic animus and every lurking instinct of religious bigotry. Under its baleful influence, cities became scenes of turbulence. For some years, the Native American, and I mean, I think he means white, like Native American. Yeah, Native, like, you like know, they styled themselves Native yeah, Americans. Had retained yeah. their character as objectors to foreigners purely upon the ground of unfitness already mentioned. Memorials which Native American bodies sent or caused legislatures uh, to send to Congress from 1836 to 39 confined their complaints against aliens to three points. Construing immigrants as, quote, foreign paupers and criminals, the memorials protested that their introduction imposed unreasonable taxes upon natives, corrupted public morals, and endangered public safety. Ain't nothing new. Nothing whatever was said reflecting upon their religious faith, nor was there even indirect mention of the subject. But then in 1834... A book was published serially in the New York Observer uh, (laughs) by Samuel F.B. Morse, but under the name of Brutus, and was later issued as a book called Foreign Conspiracy Against the Liberties of the United States. And this is, we found it. It's in the Library of Congress because some congressman like read it into the Library of Congress. 
in the That's 1830s. amazing. So uh, Byron <laughs> says, in this book, Morris contended at length that the Holy Alliance, fearful of the increasing influence of American institutions in Europe, was seeking the destruction of liberty in America. The, the Holy Alliance's chief agents in this design, Morris maintained, were Jesuits operating upon Catholic immigrants and through them plotting to control the American no. government by means of the ballot Stop box. It. The ultimate aim, Morris declared, was to introduce, quote, Popery, a political system cloaked by religion. <laughs> Urging the organization of an anti-popery union in America, Morse averred, quote, our religion, the Protestant religion, and liberty are identical, and liberty keeps no terms with despotism. Huh. Okay. So it's funny, like Yeah, well there you yeah. have it. Yeah, that I mean that's really a bold statement, and I think that definitely applies in the minds of a lot of people today that liberty and the Protestant religion are identical. Um And yet you have yeah. people like Adrian Vermeule who is like intergenerationally of this like Protestant side, but now wants to like he'd probably love to take the guy who who's, who wrote that and like force him to like go to mass and like hold his mouth open and like or, give him yeah, the Yeah, or just like straight up <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um but, yeah, I mean, for sure. It, that is interesting. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that in the past, like the weird, like, you know, rise of Catholicism as like a tendency among like the American right wing like this. Because it was viewed with such hostility uh, and suspicion for so long. I yeah. Mean, not everybody looked at it the way that these guys did, but... And I mean, it's weird because, like, you know, they have all these sort of intellectual pretensions of being, like, you know, drawing upon the great tradition of Aquinas, but, like... At this point, at least, there's still, like, remoras on, like, evangelicals and, e like, you know, have to go along. Or even, like, worse shit. Like, I remember, again, this is, like, Twitter drama, but there was that fool Jack Murphy oh, yeah. who, like, became, like, a fellow at, like, the Claremont Institute or whatever. He was also whatever. mentioned in the Vanity and, like, Fair, all... like, Teal Bucks article. Yeah, and he was, like, literally a cuckold. Mm -hmm. Like, he wrote, like, yeah. in his early Manosphere writings, he wrote about how, like, it was somehow, like, base to let your wife, like, go out and, like, have sex with random yeah. men and, like, you know, <laughs> just, like, you know, all this degeneracy that, like, you know, these these type of, like, Vermeule would, like, just, and uh, Hamari would just bristle at and just, like, you know, disdain as, like, the, the you know, the the... the uh, wages of of liberal decadence but they had to like all simp for this fool because he was a claremont fellow. well yeah well isn't he so, like trad like, now know. but he he just now he believes that, like he should be able to go out and like have sex with other people even though he's married i remember he, like, he had a tweet <laughs> he had a tweet that i i think i retweeted it like back in the day because it was so funny it was just like you know it was incredibly insincere and it was like almost like just straight up saying like i need to griff people so I'm not going to be talking about how I am continuing to do all this shit. Yeah, no, that was where like, he talked you know, about it, like having an open good, marriage. It's not was like, not, anymore. Uh, like they were confronting him about it being contradictory. Um, yes. But anyways, back yes. to the Catholic I plot. Don't change the subject. Shift, we're talking yeah, okay, about the sorry, Jesuit yes. plot to destroy liberty in America. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, the, Myers says that um, uh, this is actually kind of funny of like Morris's, the, the author, you know, his uh, how he developed these ideas. He says uh, that at this time, such a firebrand book could produce the incendiary effect it did was altogether out of reason with American principles as enunciated by law. A painter and inventor, Morris was in no sense a scholar. Certainly he was an extreme partisan. Ev evidently, he was unaware that throughout most of colonial America, Protestant sects had bitterly persecuted one another, 
disenfranchising and disqualifying nonconforming minorities, and at the same time in various places outlawing Catholics. Considerably after the adoption of the Constitution prohibiting Congress from passing laws interfering with religious liberty, some state constitutions had continued old religious discriminations, but they'd been mostly eliminated. So he's saying there really was no rational foundation, but during Morris's stay in Rome, he had witnessed Catholic ceremonies and rituals. <laughs> These, as his son wrote, quote, while appealing to the eye of the artist, were repugnant to his Puritan upbringing, and we may find many scornful remarks among his notes. A personal experience while he was watching a religious procession in Rome left an ineffaceable impression in Morse's mind. Not having taken off his hat, it was knocked off by the blow of a gun wielded by a uniformed soldier who cursed him. This incident was thoroughly exploited in the venomous campaign, which from now on raged in America. <laughs> One of the most widely and longest used of propaganda pictures was a woodcut portraying the scene and entitled Procession of the Wafer Idol, Professor Morse Outraged. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, it's so funny. Uh, this, by the way, like, you know, this is the inventor of Morse code. No, no, I, I think I looked it up. There are two different Morses who are contemporaneous with each other. I'm pretty sure it was... So, oh, Samuel yes. B. Morse is different from Samuel sure F. B. Is. Morse? Yeah, yeah, I know. That would have been I really say. funny if he was, but... Oh, uh, no, I think this was... I mean, Morse, according to Wikipedia, Morse, maybe he was oh, also wait. anti-Catholic and not the author of this, but... It, there is a section on anti-Catholicism in the Wikipedia. Oh, no, of wait, hold on, I think the Morse code guy might be because the the author of this only says uh, Brutus. I guess he is Professor Morse. Yeah, uh, according to the Library of Congress, the same yeah, Samuel, way. Samuel, uh, no, you're William right. Grimson Samuel F. This is this is Samuel F. B. Morse. I don't know why I got that wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking hilarious. The inventor of Morse code, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, <laughs> and. Uh, According, uh, on April 1st, according to Wikipedia, on April 1st, 2012, Google announced the release of Gmail Tap, an April Fool's Day joke that allowed users to use Morse code to send texts from their mobile phones. Morse's great-great-grandnephew, Reed Morse, a Google engineer, was instrumental in the prank, which became a real product. Cool. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Keeping it in the family. Yeah. Um, so he talked about how there maybe there was uh, a potential threat you know, of like Catholic influence, but like basically the French Revolution had kind of like ended that to some degree and frustrated the Holy Alliance. Myers says, Moore sees the fear of an earlier period, not much past, it is true, but still past, as the lever for his unbridled attack upon Catholicism as a faith. And to him, that church was exemplified in what he termed popery and was to be judged accordingly. Popery, he asserted, quote, does not tolerate liberty of the press or of conscience or of opinion. Like Adrian Vermeer will be like, good. You know, the Pope headed a system, yeah. quote, anti-democratic and anti-republican, which could not coexist with American republicanism. Such onslaughts, iterated and dilated, had a combustible effect upon a susceptible part of the population already well imbued with prejudicial ideas. But against whom should the force of this so-called patriotic rising be directed? In his book, Morse charted the course. He singled out Irish Catholic immigrants. <laughs> there he set forth, yeah. quote, clanned together and kept alive their foreign feelings, associations, habits, and manners. Edition after edition of Morse's book was sold and the contents were widely cited. Already there was sourness enough against Irish immigrants because of their wage competition with the native scale and their lower standards of living. Now came this additional aggravation against those of Catholic belief. In the face of severe provocation, the Irish restrained, restrained themselves for some years. But then... 
Next section, the riots begin. Finally came violent disturbance leading to three days of rioting in Philadelphia. As if deliberately to flout Irish Catholics, the Native Americans, on May 3rd, 1844, started to hold a meeting in an Irish immigrant neighborhood in the Kensington District. According to a review of events made by Representative John Codwallader, in the House of Representatives, men whom he, descri- he described as outlaws paraded the streets with Native Americans. The marchers carried insulting banners, which, quote, goaded naturalized citizens into natural expressions of resentment at these unprovoked insults. The Native American meeting was assailed and broken up. Three days later, a meeting held in the open in the same place and attended by 500 people was not disturbed until two men, one an Irish Catholic, the other an Irish Protestant, on the outskirts of the crowd became involved in a heated argument. A young man attempted to participate and when pulled away by another man, drew two pistols. There was a rush, and in the affray, pistols were were discharged. Supposing they were being attacked, the Irish, seizing clubs, bludgeons, and muskets, rushed out of their houses. Themselves armed, the Native Americans rallied, and a general fight ensued. Many Irish women fought by the sides of their husbands, and their lads, even small boys, had a conspicuous hand. Casualties on both sides were reported as two or three dead and 50 wounded. On the same night, an attempt was made to fire a parochial school. A volley from defenders killed two men and wounded several. So they had to order out basically like the state militia to like stop this like war happening because (laughs) but then on the same day, a large Native American procession paraded the streets. It bore an American flag with a placard in large letters declaring that this was the flag outraged by Irish papists, quote, after holding a meeting in the state house, the Native Americans marched in a body to Kensington. Here occurred another riot in which 29 houses were burnt. The killed numbered eight, the wounded 16, including two boys. Most of the men shot were artisans, rope makers, stone cutters, ship carpenters, shoemakers, and the like. So, yeah, that was, uh, there was, like, more, like, yeah, like, people's fucking houses were burned down. Uh, It was basically, like, the opening scene of, like, Gangs of New York. But, like, it happened, like, hundreds of times uh, throughout this period in different cities. That was just kind of the, you know, the flavor of the time. All the Jesuits, etc.,
jump forward to the era like closer to what volume three covers since we're 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 coming to the end here so yeah he mentions uh that there is a timer in the civil war where they try to pass an income tax in congress but it is uh fiercely resisted maybe they attempted a I think I don't think they passed it, but I think they almost passed it in 1871, but it was ultimately defeated. And then there's the credit mobilier scandal he talks about a little bit. Uh, then the Knights of Labor rise up after the war, and they're one of the first people to start right. advocating for a graduated income tax. Um, right. Th- then, Which, of course, but you have to get the constitutional sorry. amendment in order to get. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Because the Supreme yeah. Court, I think, as we mentioned before, like they did get one passed and then 1895. They're like unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so then there's, of course, the panic of 1873 where the middle class is plunged into ruin and the working class. Um, meanwhile, the federal and state governments are granting 212 million acres of land to railroad companies. I think jumping ahead here to like 120. Yeah, one of the first attempts, I think, to break up uh, Standard Oil starts in like the late 1880s. Um, John Sherman, who ended up you know, a congressman, later senator, introduced his uh, antitrust bill in 1890 which eventually would be invoked. But there's fierce battle about that. Then the the uh, populist party comes out, not a little bit better, I would say, than the, uh, the know-nothings, but also yeah. like spitting some almost like uh, some fiery, like Alex Jones kind of a uh, thing. Let, <laughs> yes. Let's see, what's the quote here from their platform from 1892? This is what they say about the two-party system. We have witnessed for more than a quarter of a century the struggles of the two great political parties for power and plunder. While grievous wrongs have been inflicted upon the suffering people, we charge that the controlling influences dominating both these parties have permitted the existing dreadful conditions to develop without serious effort to prevent or restrain them. Neither do they now promise us any substantial reform. They have agreed to ignore, in the coming campaign, every issue but one. They propose to drown the outcries of a plundered people with the uproar of a sham battle over the tariff so that Capitalists, corporations, national banks, rings, trusts, watered stock, the demonetization of silver, and the oppressions of the usurers may all be lost sight of. They propose to sacrifice our homes, lives, and children on the altar of mammon to destroy the multitude in order to secure corruption funds from the millionaires. Right on. So that one's mm-hmm. the populist, but the National People's or Populist Party in Omaha, Nebraska in uh, 1892. And, you know, they did have they did have a, a splash on the political scene. But then I think hilariously, 
where did I write that, you know, they start to have a kind of a positive effect, but then they basically get co-opted by like the DNC, <laughs> like yeah. and stripped of all of their radical potential. Oh yeah, yeah, one twenty nine. Hold on, they were fighting over like you know the demonetization of silver was something the middle class like hated. Yeah, in this section, um, you know they do well, but then there's a section called taken over but emasculated by Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they did they did well in the presidential election of eighteen ninety two. They got more than a million votes, and they cut heavily into the Democratic Republican vote in a whole range of states, uh, like. Kansas, um, and in also in southern states owned by the Democrats. So impressed by this showing, the Democratic Party took over advocacy of the income tax. Early in 1894, a bill was introduced in Congress providing for that. The bill, uh, the tax was only 2% on all incomes exceeding 4000 And it was way weaker than the Knights of Labor and the populace and everybody else. They did what Democrats always do. You know, basically, they... Uh, rolled out like a much more um, emasculated yeah. version of it, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So by this period, I think Myers cites... Nearly cites three-fourths of nation's wealth owned by a fa- fraction. Yeah, owned by a fraction. Uh, 9% of American families owned 71% of the wealth. There were 4,047 American millionaires in 1892. That's like pretty... That's a pretty damn small number when you think yeah. about it. You know, um, and then, of course, they got a big boost when the Supreme Court struck down the income tax law. And also this time we get to kind of a chapter 12, the expanding splendor of the rich. And maybe maybe we can kind of end there talking about I think he does a lot of good coverage of the opulence of the Gilded Age bourgeois class and how it just kept spiraling and spiraling out of control into like greater depravity and absurdity there's like huge endowments for yeah the estate tax is a big battle as well it was still kind of going on really i think it got Um, it must have gotten clawed back because he does map how starting in like the 1910s and then definitely going up through the great depression that it was progressively jacked up for the especially on the high end to the point where i think it was maxing out at like 60 percent of the fortune you know, mm-hmm. not enough, he notes, to like take away the overall wealth of these people or their children. But um, un- at least it takes a chunk out of it because a lot of times, I mean, yeah, uh, like because he zeroes right now, in like it's it's a pittance, like only the largest point two percent of estates pay the tax uh, right now. Currently. Yeah, right now. Really? Yeah, I didn't realize. So they must the have federal estate tax. Oh, the yeah. federal estate tax. Yeah, and then there are also yeah. there's state estate taxes as or a death tax is like Republicans yes. used to call it. Um, and yet, damn right, it's a death tax. Yeah, like fuck off. Like the dead hand, dead hands can fuck off. Like yes. uh, you know, uh, he Although kind of only fifteen states have a state estate. Oh, six states have an inheritance tax, and fifteen states and DC have an estate tax, and Maryland okay. has both. One interesting thing that Maryland he notes, knows what's up. They, yeah, they've been through a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. One one interesting thing he notes is that, um, you know, there's definitely a trend of a lot of these people from like all over the country uh, moving to like Palm Beach, Florida, around like the turn of the century and stuff. I didn't realize mm-hmm. there were so many wealthy people down there so long, but he notes that one of the reasons was that they had no estate, no inheritance tax whatsoever. So it was kind mm-hmm. of like a Delaware or a Wyoming for the wealthy. Right. So they all just like fled whatever states they were in to establish residence in Palm Beach so that they could pass everything on. And then even the idea of like passing 
like along their path. Some of these families of these millionaire families were passing along such wealth that even if it was taxed, often the fact that it was like it's held in trust or like still invested, like without doing anything, like without touching it or investing it actively in any kind of way, like after about 10 years of after 10 years of inheriting it, it would have like doubled or something because it's just yeah. like invested in all these different trusts and these companies and professionally managed by people. So he gets into that for a while, like just like how it just kind of keeps out doing itself with absurdity, like the idea of like the Titanic baby Aster, like inheriting <laughs> things, um, you know, yeah. as an infant. And it's weird though, because now I feel like that's been, it's been kind of normalized in a way. It, it was almost like refreshing to read that there was a huge fight about this and like abolishing this system in the early 20th century and people yeah. om- they didn't quite go far enough and Myers says they didn't go far like they really should have pushed just a little bit further to be like this entire system is absurd like why do you like it's a perpetuity and like America yeah. to the extent that you value any of the uh, stated you know like common values of like America, you know, or whatever. I think there's a concept of like fairness that people generally feel, you know, associated with like our, our Republic. And Meyer says kind of straight up, this is like the last perpetuity that creates a kind of um, aristocratic class. I mean, he also goes through how inherited wealth is like, can be very much a curse as well as a blessing. Yeah. He has a quote from somebody talking about how Newport, Rhode Island stands alone as the holy city of Mam- of Mammon. Yeah. Here are the temples of the golden it? calf. Here is the seat of government of our oligarchy yes. of luxury. Yeah. He talks about I like different part, balls yeah. and stuff. Like if you went back and reading, like read the society pages and shit, like the giddy Bradley Martin ball of 1893, the famous Hyde ball of 1905, the yeah. like everyone just, just trying Taylor to Taylor Swift wrote each about other. in her song, which then the last great American dynasty, which then went on to brag about owning one of these houses. Wait, really? Uh, yeah. Which, which house yeah, did she own? Holiday house, which was built oh. for, uh, the Harknesses, I think, who were oh, the like Harknesses. the last, they popped up. They were standard, standard oil. oil. Yeah. They yeah. are mentioned here. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Rebecca, she wrote a song about Rebecca Harkness, huh. who was like married to the last male heir, but he died. And, she threw crazy parties and she was, you know, a nasty woman of sorts. Uh, yeah. Well, a lot of them <laughs> were nasty women and men um, over a while. Yes. You know, he does note that like increasingly because of the abolition of primogeniture, a lot of wealthy citizens were like women as the 19th century went on. Right. So you had these uh, these women who were the the uh, the ladies of like vast financial estates that spent absolutely lavishly. And obviously, um, you know, manage quite a bit of social capital as well as hard, I mean, hard capital. Yeah, honestly, there's like a pretty good discussion of this at like the very, very end, really, where he this is a little bit of a uh, rosy picture of ancient Greece and Rome, I would say. But, you know, that uh, is part of this. But other than that, it, it's pretty good. Um, he says, since when, forsooth, 
literally saying forsooth it's something uh since when forsooth was democracy dependent upon the bounty of the rich for its advancement culturally or otherwise Mm -hmm. from the community came the sponsoring of the arts which attained so flourishing a state in the ancient democracies of greece and rome Eh. and at a later time in florence when america was still largely wilderness the settlers from new england to south carolina were proclaiming education a public necessity and establishing schools this aim was greatly enlarged after the revolution democracy endowed itself with the equivalent of enormous funds for cultural needs schools and the means of education shall be forever encouraged thus resolved the continental congress in 1783 its or- and its ordinance in 1785 followed by another in 1789 perpetually reserved an area of public lands ultimately reaching more than wow 116 million uh, acres for the establishment of the support of schools, colleges, and universities. In addition to this great gift, states granted the next proceeds of lands owned by them for the same purpose. America's vast educational system of today, defrayed at public expense, is democracy's own creation and development. No, defund it. Uh, <laughs> sorry. And at a time when libraries in Europe were collegiate encased, it was American democracy which provided thousands of public libraries at the great extent of the country. Rich men who gave or bequeathed the sums of pu- for public libraries and other institutions were merely falling in line with the American democratic standards. Yep. That their object was to gain applause and enhancement of name, either in life or in posterity or both, was fully recognized in critical magazine articles and other comments of the mid-19th century. The same craving for applause was seen in a peculiar and more pretentious way in the patronage of the fine arts. They were groups who were genuinely interested in promoting the cause of art and with no thought of self-exaltation. But merchants whose entire passion had been that of amassing money sought to invest themselves with a refined air by becoming, quote unquote, patrons of fine art academies, as they were then styled. In Europe, collections of paintings had long been cloistered in royal and princely palaces. That practice was now imitated by various of the American rich, despite the fact that well through the 19th century, the advancing democratic spirit in many European countries was causing the creation of public museums of art, either nationally or municipally owned. In these were placed for public view collections brought or otherwise obtained from those age-long owners. In America, a quote-unquote art gallery has been sufficiently shown in the body of this book, has long remained a vaunted part of the mansions of the very rich, and far overlapped the fast-spreading movement for the establishment in city after city of public museums of art. Often, in finally contributing their works of art to these, the rich were merely much belated conceders to a democratic institution, and in turn, used the occasion for the perpetuation of their names either by museums being named after them, as sometimes happened, or by conspicuous attachment uh, of their names to the collections donated. Abstaining from elaboration upon the other features, we can now arrive at a crucial point. To recapitulate, the definite aim, as expressed in national sentiment and in legislation, has been to break up great estates by heavy taxation upon inheritances. By the same course, in still wider and heavier ways, President Franklin D. Roosevelt proposed the erasure of all hereditary economic power. But, it well may be asked, is taxation an absolutely dependable method? As we have convincingly seen, that process may be fluctuating. There was, in a former era, repeal of legacy taxes. Estate or inheritance taxes have been reduced before and may be again. At this writing, there is a business association's campaign to bring about the lessening of income and some other kinds of taxation. Is not the wise and permanent course the following of that taken when America rid itself of primogeniture and entail? That there were complexities involved in this had no weight with legislatures. Enactment of the principle was the one and only thing considered, and it was done in simple and drastic statutes which proved effective. Why not do the same with great hereditary wealth? 
Why not, Why not definitely abolish it as a statutory right? And at the same time, completely recast laws so as to prohibit trust for heirs and all other devices allowing transmission of large fortunes. Determination of what is wealth and what is not is anything but insuperable. The differentiations between wealth and moderate means are already defined in our income tax and inheritance laws. Abolition of hereditary fortunes will not complete that fuller economic equality toward which the spirit of the age is here progressing, but it commends itself an important and bounden step, and it now stands as first on the calendar of capital uh, U uh, unfinished capital B business. Damn yes. right it's unfinished business, but yes, yeah, so no, I think it's a, it's a good, despite what Carnegie would say about himself, like he didn't invent the idea of building public libraries, you know, or, yeah. or if you really look back everything from the federal highway system to the railroads, to everything else, with the canals, to everything else we've talked about, uh, or even today, like the fucking internet, you know, this is all built by taxpayer money. So do we really need these, uh, middlemen, these criminal middlemen basically you know it's basically the one of the it's like almost like the biggest psyop of all is that we somehow need them and we need this system elon musk is a self-made man well he's amazing yeah right clawed his way up when like we gave him a bunch of money yeah no exactly and like if if the u.s government had hired capable people to do all of these things it would have done them way cheaper and probably in a less evil way i mean there's still the whole stealing land from the Native Americans and aspect. Yeah, they're of pretty course. evil. And a lot of the time, they're, I mean, the, the problem is, as we've seen in this book, they're one and the same. Like yeah. they're in cahoots and they are. The government's never the been same. truly separate from the people that set up the government who were wealthy landowners and slave owners and merchants, basically, yeah. and part of this elite. I just want to read a couple more things because a couple more quotes of his before we get out of here about like the the kind of the status of the people who ended up inheriting this wealth, which include people we've talked about many times in this podcast, like Lawrence Rockefeller, David Rockefeller, the various kind of Morgan children, grandchildren, Henry Ford II, who ran the Ford Foundation, you know, Lewis Hill, people like that. So he says, uh, you know, he talked under an absurdity compounded. He says, uh, allowing fortune founders some debatable ground for their sweeping assertion that they deserve their money. What claim of any kind, it was asked, could be made for children, often puling infants, automatically becoming endowed with millions or tens of millions? Their one and only basis was gamble of birth. While the armies of honest workers were virtually penalized because they did work, these heirs were assured of a lifetime of wayward idleness, and this most of them pursued, and in the doing thereof, accredited themselves with having a certified high social caste. The same code of laws, not even recognizing the crying need for a modicum of security for the working population, sustained with all its mandatory force the well-nigh illimitable security possessed by the super-rich. He says later, Incapable of being spent in any legitimate manner, these fortunes are burdens, which can only be squandered, hoarded, put into so-called benefactions, which for the most part constitute a menace to the state, or put back into the industrial machine to pile up in ever-increasing mountains of gold. And that was actually, I think, a congressional testament. That was from the U.S. Commission of Industrial Relations that said that. <laughs> he talks about directorships of corporations being handed down by heredity. Quote, as a class, these heirs were not qualified by disposition, capacity, or training to undertake managing the immensity of their properties, even had they the desire. Their predilections were sharply to the opposite. The habitual modes by which most of these heirs dawdled life away were matters of published notoriety. Self-gratification was their one aim. Let me see. He also wrote 
a funny, oh yeah, this is the last thing I'll read. Uh, he writes, furthermore, great hereditary wealth is a license to social irresponsibility. All others must regulate their lives as responsible members of the community with definite duties to be performed and obligations in common to be met. But very rich inheritors are held by no limitations. Their wealth allows them the privileged latitude to do as they please and usually do it to excess, not only in addiction to vagaries and self-indulgence, but all too often in affront of manners and wantonness of conduct. Wealth is their passport to arrogance and snobbishness. Ain't that the truth? True. Yeah. So. Very true. <sighs> we gotta right. do something. It's not. It's not good. Uh, <laughs> it's really not good. Like <laughs> this is bad. Bad news. I don't see how we yeah. could really have you know uh, a true egalitarian society. It is a strange holdover. Though I, really, when you look at from 1930s to now, it seemed like it. They were. Go, they were just starting to get some control over it. And maybe that's a question for another day is how did World War II and the Cold War era allow this class, which seemed to be a little bit like on their heels by the end of the 1930s, how did it allow they them? They invented intelligence. They invented They invented the intelligence community uh, all, and the military industrial complex. That's what blah, they blah, fucking blah. did. That's what they did. I mean, he, we, I think we skipped over here, but like the massive amount of war profiteering during World War One was just like literally yeah. off the fucking charts. Like everybody was just, I think Smedley Butler talked about that yeah. in his book, uh, War is a Racket. But um, I'm excited to bring... The same thing was true as Civil War. Oh yeah, exactly. Ain't nothing new. You know, so right. I think that as long as you allow that, I think they, they leaned on their social capital of being uh, able to embed themselves. They were still embedded in the corporate world, but to embed themselves in government as well and then engineer a political environment and an economic environment, even though they had to they had to concede a lot of stuff during those years, right? They had to ha allow labor unions to be kind of powerful and have these welfare benefits and things like that. But you, you see, like, starting in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, um, the mask starts to slip again, right? And then once yeah. the once the big bad guy is gone, the so the great antagonist, the Soviet Union, they go full mask off, and now I feel like we are back in like 1902, kind of, or maybe yeah. it's 1927. I'm not sure what the time clock is, but this shit did blow up, and I, it's hard for me to think that it totally like they were in on the blowing up of it because it, it got so out of control that they ended up losing. If they, if it was planned, it was a miscalculation. It seems because unless of course, you know, like the globalists, like they wanted Roosevelt so he could build like, you know, a big government and then they could <laughs> take over like, you know, but I think, you know, yeah. I don't know, like it, Roosevelt took a lot of shit and maybe he was murdered. Uh, that's another thing for another day, but maybe they poisoned yeah. him and he wanted to, you know, the, the, the fucking second bill of rights, right. That he was, promoting when he died to kind of enshrine the yeah the, it's the only thing way you get something to stick in this damn country is if you put it into the constitution yeah gustavus myers was pro court packing too yeah i mean uh, whatever yeah, yeah fuck it yeah pro and age <laughs> limits which fdr also uh said like no yeah. more rbg scenarios uh everybody yes exactly yeah that gotta retire nice. at 70 that's it yeah. How dare you, Ted? How dare you? Oh, her when to retire. That's typical story. <laughs> Man <laughs> telling is her always telling a woman when to retire, when to stop. Yeah. Mm, 
get we were t- you were telling her to get back in the kitchen basically <laughs> at age 92 or whatever oh yeah. yeah all right yeah well i think um we finally reached it at the end here of our staggering gustavus myers journey through the history of the great american fortunes um sadly they're not they are not ended and there have been newer nefarious ones that have been created yeah by silicon valley at all i think we have to we have to keep fighting the on top of you know letting people know that like this is how actually every time somebody yeah. yells at you to read settlers tell them read hot gaff first and then maybe <laughs> read settlers after that but like don't just read settlers and not read hot gaff um because Gustavus is woke enough on the issue of like land theft from the Native Americans uh, that I feel like it still holds up today. But he he's woke enough. To be honest, I don't like have the knowledge of settlers that would like, you know, allow me to like truly clown on settlers. I have like a vague idea. I've only like I haven't like thoroughly read settlers. We may have to read it and wade into like the discourse battlefield one day. I'm not I'm not saying like it's all bullshit or like uh, Jay Sakai is like an FBI agent or something like that. I just mean (laughs) the, the, the attitudes of like some people who are very online that like avidly promote like reading settlers you know like people that were like yeah, standing rojava but like lecturing to you it. to like read yeah. settlers my dude is kind of like like that that kind of type of yeah. posture um and kind of maybe a certain flattening of like everybody in america is just a settler i think you know at the end of the day we're all living in this country and i do think and maybe it's not i find it more productive to focus on like the several thousand families that have like defrauded and despoiled and usurped and like dominated this country and their various minions and things like that, which is like a very small, um, primarily Anglo-Saxon population um, in this kind of, just to be clear, like that's who I'm talking about. And the system that was built up that perpetuates, even with some people not being conscious of it, I feel like, there's a lot of low hanging fruit to kind of attack there where if you just kind of tell people about some of this stuff, I don't think it's overly hard to believe, you know, and it also buttresses the whole idea when you start talking about conspiracies in the 20th century, it backs it up to have this like, Hey, it's kind of always been this way. It is interesting that everyone would just say like, yeah, conspiracy happened like every single week. Like there'd be a new conspiracy that would just be like a matter of public record. But now that's like 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 where did all those putt cartoon cartoonists get their ideas from to like draw Jay Gould's gigantic spider like hovering over like the Capitol and like telegraph wires like that seems pretty conspiratorial (laughs) and like bombastic to me. That seems a little bit like Alex Jones. That's dangerous. You know, Uh, so yeah, like like, exactly. It's dangerous. Like don't let Gould have the last laugh. But like what are we supposed to believe at one point like the conspiracies just stopped and people stopped behaving in this way. I mean, I guess it's easy. Maybe they needed the new deal to kind of like take the heat off for a while and make everybody forget a little bit about their stealing, thieving, manipulative ways. And then they could slowly start to insinuate themselves back and keep a kind of like a soft touch control over a lot of these different institutions. But you know, just like they learned from their their scion, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller, that you have to craftily hide your moves and not make a bunch of noise unless you want to send out some rock and roll billionaire to like make a, 
a very convenient distraction for you, which we're still dealing with today. I mean, we could go for another hour. We really could. Yeah. Uh, Well, we have another hour down the line. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And <laughs> I will we'll try to figure out kind of maybe like a, a broader meta series for this uh like like what are I think the the Ida Tarbell standard oil book is really good. Lenin's imperialism, maybe some others. Um yeah, that would we be could good. That launch a meta that. series of like the great world fortunes or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we Word. will leave it there for now. Rest in power, Gustavus Myers. And until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Becca rode up on the afternoon train. It was sunny. Her salt box house on the coast took a mind off St. Louis. Bill was the heir to the standard oil name. And money. And the town said, how did a middle class divorce